HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Dan Bubniak, Chief Growth Officer at Dirty Hands, the family-owned field sales, merchandising, and brokerage partner whose mission is to support natural and organic food and beverage brands. Dirty Hands has built a reputation for its value to brands, growing distribution, and maximizing their presence at shelf, helping brands like Once Upon a Farm, Vital Farms, Hugh, Olipop, Siggy's, and Go Macro win at retail, where 85% of sales are happening. Daniel has been at Dirty Hands for six years as CFO, COO, and recently moved into growth and strategy as they continue to evolve and offer more services to brands and retailers. Welcome, Dan. I'm glad to be here. It's nice to talk to you, Allie. Yeah, me too. I'm glad to have you. Um, I was looking back because I interviewed someone, it was episode 107. Um, so for people who are wondering what I'm talking about, if it's if it's still kind of early in your CPG journey and words like, you know, voids and merchandising and secondary placements and things like that um, are confusing, definitely go back to episode 107 where someone from Dirty Hands sort of broke it all down and explained. Um, so this is almost like part duh in a way. Um, and so let's start a little bit um, with some background about Dirty Hands. And I think, you know, people can look up what Dirty Hands is, but I think maybe your involvement with it, because you've kind of touched different parts of the business. Um, so it'd be good to sort of have your version of, you know, the growth of the company and, and what it's been doing. Sure, absolutely. And as you mentioned, you know, what we really do is field sales, merchandising and brokering. So, you know, we'll, we'll go into that a little bit. But Dirty Hands, we started, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, um, simply off the notion of, you know, there was a gap in between having people in store, uh, whether that was, you know, as a brokerage team or with the retailers, there was a little bit of, you know, a lack of, of help at the store. So our founder, Rory Ahern, he had been working, uh, you know, in, in stores in his prior job. And what he had realized was, hey, if, if I'm not in store, things are going wrong or things aren't happening, right? So right. He, he actually found himself out of a job and, and ultimately said, you know what, I'm going to take this idea and see if I can get a brand to really pay me to go execute on their behalf. And so he started going into Whole Foods in the Northeast region, you know, 10 years ago, um, you know, off this premise of, 
hey, if I'm there, if I'm present, if I'm helping out, uh, I think that I could really grow these brands. And and what he started to realize was the more frequent he was there, the better the brands were doing. And the brand mm-hmm. started to realize that as well. So what started as this simple concept of getting in store and getting your hands dirty uh, really blew up into something that brands needed nationally. And so we, we took yep. that concept of merchandising, of being in, in stores uh, a lot and just really scaled that across the country and into different retailers. So um, that's a little bit of the background on, on Dirty Hands and how we got started um, you know, when I, I joined Dirty Hands about six years ago, I have a personal relationship with the Ahern family, actually. Um, Will Ahern, who's our president, uh, he's a good friend. Uh, someone I grew up with, ran track together. Uh, you know, we he's one year older than me, so very, very close in terms of high school and, and stayed close in college. And so I had stayed close to him after college as he was building Dirty Hands, and I started my career in accounting. And, you know, mm. just offered some help out, you know, as they grew the business, they're, they're more of the sales, culture, people side. And, and I kind of helped uh, more informally in, you know, any finance or accounting questions and then ended up getting getting a job um, as yeah. our chief financial officer. I think it was, you know, Ali Classic title, right? right. We were a small organization. It, <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, I was the only person in finance, so I'm not really sure. Right. You're the think. chief everything. Yeah. yeah I mean, exactly. one, of, one of the things I want to kind of go back up a little bit because, you know, I think people, you know, I can speak for myself and I, you know, I, I know a lot of people building brands that the sales function, you know, we think, okay, we make this product. It costs us $2 to make. I'm going to sell it for you know, it'll be on shelf for $8. That leaves me plenty of room. That's great. But then you start to meet everyone along the way who, you know, there's the, you know, the broker and then there's the distributor and then there's, you know, the promos and the demos. And all of a sudden you start to realize that like, this is, it's, it's expensive, Right. And, you know, I guess a lot of the questions that people have are, you know, why? And I mean, were you surprised when you started, when you got into it, like just how complex the grocery store ecosystem is for brands, little brands, big brands, like how big and kind of convoluted it is to make something produce it, warehouse it, get it on a truck, get it to another warehouse, get it on the shelf, and then have someone take it home and put it in their kitchen? Absolutely. I mean, I, I had no experience in, in grocery. So when I came mm-hmm. in, I was similar to what you just said. I was astounded by the complexity of how to actually build a brand. Um, and I, I think the, the weakness uh, of the industry, why a lot of brands don't make it is because of that, what you just said. Mm-hmm. There's so many different options, right? There's so many different channels. There's so many different ways to spend money. Uh, and there's so many different players within the industry that you have to coordinate between. So that was a huge surprise uh, to me, honestly, when I came in. And I think it gave me a lot of empathy for brands in terms of how they attack the industry and how they need to strategize. Mm-hmm. And you know, through experience working with hundreds of brands, it's it's helped me learn over the years on what are the do's and, and don'ts, or at least right. things to be wary of in making those decisions. And it certainly seems like, you know, I mean, I think you and I have talked about this. I think everyone, you know, if I had as much money as I wanted to have, the most important thing I would spend on is, you know, what I call sort of babysitting the product at shelf. And it's just, it is a shockingly, you know, you, I've just pictured this little tiny box of six fresh sauces landing on like the back door of, you know, like a Whole Foods, kind of like getting thrown off of a UNFI truck, landing somewhere, you know, hoping that someone picks it up and knows where to put it, knows that we're out of stock or knows, you know, that they need to be reordered, knows that we're on promo. If they, you know, if something happens and the tag falls, knows to refix it. It's you're just crossing your fingers you know, direct, like the, you know, direct to shelf, the DSD distribution is, is a little bit more handholdy for the small brands. Um, but it's an, it's a no brainer to me that, 
we're going to get lost and things are going to happen and more so now than ever before the pandemic, especially with labor and the grocery stores being what it is, you know, we need people watching the kids in the pool. Um, I think the disconnect, and you and I have talked about this, is that sometimes that's a hard nut to swallow from a cost perspective when you are also paying a distributor and a broker and you're paying, you know, a, a promo fee to Whole Foods Global for, you know, $15,000 and you have a sales team. And so I guess the question for you is like, how do you, you know, what, what say you to that? And, you know, okay, Allie, I know you don't have unlimited funds, but here's, here's my thought on what, you know, the, the problem that you just described. Sure. Yeah. And, and this is probably the, the biggest question that I get when I'm speaking to brands and, and, and founders when they ask about the value behind merchandising and field sales. Um, it's how, how do you measure that, right? And, and how do you sh make sure that the investment you're making, because it is costly, returns? And I would say, you know, there's there's two things. Um, the, the first is, I think that the best brands that we've worked with look at merchandising field marketing as a strategy long term, uh, mm -hmm. not just a short term expense measured by return on investment. Right. I, I would say most brands uh, do look at merchandising investment as a short term expense. And, and so they often ask, how do you prove the return on investment for me? Right. If I'm if I'm going to pay you five thousand dollars a month. Well, I expect to see $5,000 increase in my sales, right? To, to justify yeah. that spend. Um, we, we get that a lot and it's hard to overcome that methodology. But what I'll say is the most successful brands that we've worked with look at field merchandising, field marketing as a strategy long-term. And the, yeah. the reason why is because ultimately shoppers, you, you, you don't win them overnight right? It, it's mm -hmm. not like a shopper puts you into the basket, buys your product, and then all of a sudden you have a loyal brand. You, you've mm -hmm. got to have that shopper return multiple times. And what happens the second time when the shopper comes and you're out of stock, right? You just, they're mm -hmm. probably going to pick somebody else up, right? And yeah. and shopper cycles take weeks, right? So the, the first thing I think brands are looking at is it's going to take a long time to win the loyalty of the shoppers in store. And because 85 of 85 percent of the sales are in retail, well, we know right. we need to invest in retail, and we know we have to take a long-term spectrum on that investment because ultimately retail is a compounding game, right? Mm -hmm. If you are able to be more in stock with better real estate, with you know less voids, with the off-shelf placements, well, you're yep. over time going to compile more uh, more shoppers, and you're also going to yep. keep more shoppers. And, yep. and that really compounds for you. And as you start to have a better presence over a year, over two years, right? Then tr shoppers have a lot of loyalty to you. You're you're showing up in more places. You have more visibility. You're in stock more. And, and for example, when one of your competitors goes out of stock, you are in stock, right? And you mm -hmm. are the person that the, the shopper picks up and now you just want a new customer, right? So, you know, the, the examples of that is, um, you know, a couple of brands, RX Bar uh, took a long-term mm -hmm. horizon. You know, before RX Bar was RX Bar, and they had, mm -hmm. you know, these big fundraising rounds, and and they were a big national brand. They went all in on field marketing, field merchandising, and it wasn't just, hey, we're going to measure the increase in sales, and if it's not there, we're going to cut it. Uh, they said, hey, this is part of our strategy. We are going to right. be more in stock with better placements over time than any other bar in the set. And mm -hmm. what happened is when we watched them grow nationally for years, they just swallowed that whole bar set and they did it because it was part of their strategy. Yeah. Now, to, to your question on, well, that great, right? Every brand knows that, but how do you afford it? I think right. that's that's a different question. You know, it, it, it's when you look at where we're at today as well, when, you know, everyone's shifting the profitability and it's harder to fundraise. I think brands are really forced to prioritize how they're spending their dollars. For for me, what I talk to brands about is really making sure that they understand what retailers and what SKUs and what third parties are providing critical value to their business today. I think there were some bad habits over the past years mm -hmm. where it was really easy to raise money for everybody. Um, yeah. And investors were looking at growth. They, they weren't necessarily look, looking at profit. So the rules of the game back then are different than they are 
now, you know, brands were focused more on how do I go in multiple channels and grow my top line, not how do I focus and grow my bottom line. Yep. Whereas today, investors aren't putting money into brands, well, most brands that aren't profitability focused. You know, I, I, I will tell you something funny because, you know, I speak to a lot of investors and, you know, I don't want to like throw shade, but I'm surprised at how focused they still are on the top line. So, you know, I, I'll, at this point, I'm like, listen, I could double this this year if I did X, Y, and Z at X, Y, and Z margin, but that would not be good for the long-term, right? So I think going back to the bigger picture is a lot of us are realizing, you know, first of all, are we building this for a potential investor to be like, oh, wow, look at that top line, or are we building this to be like a sturdy business, number one? And number two, to your point, are we opening, you know, it's with the retail environment being the way it is. And I don't know anyone who has a clear idea of when the re, you know, the resets are and when the calendar reviews are. Very few retailers right now are like super clear. They have these kind of calendars and they have sort of these general times where they think they're going to do it, but it's 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 really less clear than ever. And so the goal is really, okay, take the doors that you're in, they're already open and kick them open as wide as possible. And it's a little bit slower and it's not as big of like, you don't get that big load in month. You don't get that, ooh, look at that, you know? But what you do have is this like compounding, slow and steady. Okay, we were selling, you know, six chimneys a week. Now we're going to sell eight chimneys a week. Now we're going to sell 10 chimneys a week and, you know, see how that goes. And I think to your point, in order to do that, you need you you need to refocus from like, I'm going to spend on TikTok to I'm going to spend where there is actually a shopper who is potentially going to buy my product. And that's where you guys come in. Right. And, and I will say, I love that you push back on the you know profitability versus growth, because I think What's funny, Allie, and you know this, is investors want you to grow top line and be profitable, right? I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that, that's what we all want, you know? But, yeah, you know. that's what we all want. But when it comes time to cut the check, uh, you know, what, mm-hmm. what we're seeing more often in the short term is more of a focus on, you know, uh, founders that are more, a, a stronger steward of capital, people who are focused on profitability, who investors feel comfortable are going to spend their money the right way. So to, right. to your point, um, I think that has created a new approach to how founders, um, you know, operators are looking at spending those dollars. I think there is more of a focus around, you know, what are the things that I might have today that maybe I put in place a year ago, two years ago, that isn't relevant anymore, or is driving maybe less of my sales, a small portion of my sales that I'm investing a lot of money into. So what right. if I was to maybe cut out the last SKUs in my portfolio that are maybe mm-hmm. dragging spend or dragging revenue, or the retailers maybe that are costing me more than I'm making? Mm-hmm. Well, what could I do if I had extra cash to then reinvest in, let's say, the retailer that's driving 80% of my sales. You know, yeah. maybe, maybe I could yeah. go in and, and have uh, more demos or more merchandisers in those stores and drive velocity. I want to ask you specifically, though, because so, you know, let's say you're a Sprouts brand, you're doing 60% of your sales at Sprouts, the rest is, you know, some version of Kehi something and maybe a Whole Foods region. And, you know, you know that like, okay, I'm going to like lean really hard into Sprouts. What are some of the tactics that you know, you would say to brand X, okay, you know, this is what the five thousand dollars a month is going to get you. Like these are what the hands that are getting dirty are going to do. And I, I mean, I know we've gone over them sort of vaguely, but like, get a little specific. Sure, I think it depends on the brand. First of all, every brand in every category has a different opportunity at retail. So I think looking mm-hmm. at what type of brand you are, number one, makes the most sense. For example, if you're a brand that you can have, you know, POP placements or you can put shippers into stores, that's different mm-hmm. than maybe a brand that you know is a, a dairy it's refrigerated. brand. Right. That, right. right. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I think you know narrowing into what type of brand you are is number one, and then number two is setting very specific goals. We would look and help our brands based on the category that they're in. 
you know, make those decisions because we've seen it with other brands that we work with. So mm -hmm. for example, if we do have, let's say a, a, a jerky that you could have POP placements, well, we're going to put in our strategy, that's going to be a priority of ours to go out there and in the stores that we're in, get you off the shelf. That's going to be maybe right. our first priority. Um, we like to think of each brand of having a main priority. And that's the thing that is, mm. isn't your like day-to-day -day in stock, you know, promotions executed, but it's something peripheral to that, something that you're really focused on as a brand that's different than your day-to-day -day merchandising. What mm -hmm. we do with every brand is the same from a day-to-day -day merchandising or day-to-day -day sales perspective, right? We're going to go in, we're going to make sure that, you know, you're, you're you look good, you're reordered, you're priced right. You know, if you have a promotion that's executed, we're going to try to expand you know, your real estate over time. But mm -hmm. what we really want to do is understand the brand's category and then develop a strategic initiative uh, that really fits that type of brand. And so that, that example with Jerky where we can place shippers or we can work with the store to get registers, that's what we're going to do for that specific brand, for example. And we'll blitz yeah. that and we'll go after it and we'll measure it. And I mean, you know, I'm speaking, asking for a friend, but you know, one of the things that we have always, I mean, anyone who's been listening to me since 2018 basically like knows my whole like strategy of life, which is, you know, our chimichurri and gingery miso and tahini do very well when they're in their little spots, but where they do really well, not only for us, but for our retail partners and for the home cook is when you put you know, that chimichurri next to flank steak, right? right? We're getting that secondary placement from the retailer is almost impossible. It's, it's happened once in like three stores, but sure. giving them the tools, like giving our team the tools to go in and put clip strips when we're allowed to, or put, you know, a tag on a steak for, you know, to go back, to go, you know, get a dollar off the chimichurri though that requires hands it requires people and it requires some nuance and some talking at the like store level to the butcher or the seafood guy or the tofu people you know to say hey this is what we're doing and this is what it is and maybe here's a coupon for a free pouch and it's it, it's very it's really labor intensive and i guess part of the question is like would you would you say okay this is something that we're gonna and I'm sure it's different but is it do you ever do something where you're like listen this doesn't make sense in all 350 stores this makes sense in the top 20 stores where your product is already doing XYZ where you know we have the relationships with XYZ and sort of do little testing sites type of thing yeah absolutely I think we always do with all of our brands we always prioritize those top 20 accounts in each of the regions by the way that's core to the strategy most of those drive mm -hmm. most of the velocity for for all of the brands so we do focus there as it exists uh today in terms of you know developing a strategy with let's say in you know the, your your brand um we are going to look at what do you think works and for example when you're talking about hey can we cross merchandise this with the flank state stake mm -hmm. the benefit of our business model is that and it's intentional is that we go into those stores every week so we are in these right. stores so frequently you know we're breaking down u-boats with the store staff uh, we've mm -hmm. built those relationships over time. Uh, and because we are there so frequently, it's much easier when you have a developed relationship to go for okay. those asks. Um, and maybe if you get a no, we're, well, we're going to be back a week later and then a week later after that. Right. So right. a lot of it comes down to the discipline of, you know, number one, training our team members. So getting a clear sense of what the brand's priority is. If your priority is let's try cross merchandising. Well, we're going to, we're going to focus on that. We're going to talk to our teams about that. We're going to prioritize that. Then it's training the team members on how do you actually do that? Do we mm -hmm. need to have any specific tools? Like you said, do we need to have clip strips? Do we need to have coupons? What's right. the thing Collateral that can help us? Right. Exactly. Yep. What's the thing that's going to help us tell that story and execute that actual initiative? And then the last is just the consistency, right? And and I think what mm -hmm. has allowed us to differentiate ourselves is just being there so frequently that we have the relationship. So once you've built goodwill, all you need to do is have the tools in place to really convince that you know store team member to make that thing happen. So right. so we'll do that. And then I think the unique thing about Dirty hands is we can, you know, we record what we're doing in store and then you can cross reference against sales. 
to your point, right. what did that thing do to sales? And if we see it work, mm -hmm. well, maybe we want to blast that out to different regions or different retailers if it's if yeah. it's possible in those retailers. So it feels like there's sort of like the table stakes, which is like you want to be in stock. You want to make sure that the promotions are executed. You want to, you know, you just want to make sure everyone's looking good on the shelf. And then there's like the next layer, which is like gaining incremental placement where you are, you know, making sure that you're kind of every every time there's a possibility you're getting an additional skew or an additional slot. And then there's sort of this like icing on the cake, which is can you get a knee knocker, which is a new term for me, which I just, I've never had a knee knocker, but I just love the idea mm -hmm. that they're called knee knockers. Can you get one of those placed over here? Or can you get, you know, something at the register? Or in our case, can you get, you know, a case of chimmy put into the butcher case? And it just, it's, it's sort of like this um, tailored fit, depending on the category and the product and, and what the brand is ultimately going for. Is that the way to sum it up? Yeah, I think that's I think that's really said. And and the way I look at those tiers is that first tier of in stock, price right, promotions, uh, all, all of those types of things, you can do that pretty much on every time you're in store, right? It's those right. are the the baseline promises that any, you know, third party, your own team, a merchandiser should should be able to execute. That second tier really depends on the retailer. A lot of retailers, you know, uh, have planograms or maybe yeah. different rules Same around what you can, use. right. Or yeah. limited numbers of sets that you can make those decisions in. But if you are in retail and you have the right tools and you make the right asks, they are possible. Right. And then to yeah. your point that that third tier is, is maybe you're going for those types of home runs or grand slams a couple of times a month, but in the in the highest performing retailers, they're they're less right. likely. But if you get them, they're a grand slam for you. So I think yeah. those those tiers are well said, and the ability to execute those um, kind of as you go down those tiers uh, is reduced, but not impossible. I guess one of my questions is: there are brokers and distributors who say that they do store visiting. And they do sort of, you know, get their hands on the product. How do you play with, how do you, it feels like there's just a lot of, does the sales team on the brand side need to be very, very clear on like, I mean, it's, I think the answer to this is probably yes, but you know, who's kind of, if everyone's watching the kids in the pool, nobody's watching the kids in the pool kind of thing. So is it like, hey, Dirty Hands, you're responsible for this, which is different from the broker, which we anticipate will be doing this. And if there is a, you know, DSD distributor, technically they say that they're merchandising. Some of them do it better than others. You know, do, do, you, do you have brands where like there are sort of three layers deep of of teams that are sort of saying they're going into the store and then you have to like carve out like who owns what does that happen? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say most brands that we work with have those three stakeholders involved. Um, and, mm -hmm. and I think it's important to realize why, uh, and it's, you know, it's actually why dirty hands exist in the first place, you know, brokers and distributors aren't necessarily in store that often, right? When you right. look at, the turns of some of these brands, the velocity of some of these brands, being in store once a month or once a quarter isn't going to really affect your velocity materially. Right, um, and, and that's why Dirty Hands exists in the first place because we we realized that that was a big problem for brands, especially some of those top movers. They just couldn't stay in stock. Mm -hmm. So yep. for us, it's you know I think it's knowing where in those uh, where in those parties you fit, and for us, we're focused on velocity and retail execution. Um, right. We try not to, we do work with those third parties. We work with distributors all the time. We talk to their reps. We talk to the brokerage reps, but we just try to put our head down and stay focused on what we're hired for and what we do really right. well, which is go into the store with a strategy that we've developed for each brand and focus on the things that drive velocity. We're not necessarily yeah. concerned on who needs to do what. We've developed right. really our focus and just go in and, and hit the pavement with that. Yeah. Now at the same time, you don't want to 
butt heads with any of those third parties. But we've been doing this enough time that we've really developed relationships with those distributors as well. So they know what we're doing. And brokerages too, if there's any issues that we're running into, we'll we'll call them out and work with brokers together on who's going to do what. Um, but mainly we're just focused on on hitting the shelves and, and driving velocity. And uh, that's where we're spending our time. And it seems like you're also expanding a little bit, right? Because I think you and I talked a couple months ago. It seems to me like you you keep seeing white spaces. Like you keep seeing that there's like holes in the system that you can fill a little bit. Um, and so, you know, part of it is, you know, we've talked about how to maximize once you're on shelf. Um but I think you think a lot about helping brands get on shelf too. And so, you know, I'm kind of curious what what's happening at Dirty Hands in that respect. Sure. Yeah, we've been uh, we've been building a brokerage. I think, you know, most brands uh, are probably aware of that. We've done some some marketing and through social media, um, but we are building a brokerage. And, and this concept basically came from, you know, brands were saying, hey, we're, we're paying you uh, for merchandising mm-hmm. and we're also paying our brokerage. Why? Why can't you just do both? Uh, and so it was mm-hmm. as simple as as that that kind of struck the light bulb of, hey, maybe we should look into offering a service. Now, I think as we started to develop a theory behind developing a brokerage, a lot of light bulbs went off and a lot of interesting things happen when you combine having a sales team at headquarters with a team at retail. That isn't just there monthly or quarterly, but there is there weekly. Um, uh, So a, a couple of things. Number one, brands are paying multiple fees to multiple parties. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, that makes sense because they have to. That's the way that it exists today. What we saw was, hey, could we build a brokerage uh, that combines the two services together so that a brand doesn't right. need to pay us and go pay their brokerage, but maybe they get both combined together. And maybe the merchandising and the field sales aspect of the brokerage is just what the brokerage is, right? It's not an add-on. Right. It's just what the service is. That's exciting. I think a lot of brands that we've talked to are really excited about that. We've worked with a few brands who said, wow, this is this is revolutionary. I didn't know I could get headquarters support and have a weekly field team, you know, and it, it cost me the same as what I was paying my previous broker. That right. that was like a, a light bulb that went off for, for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, that obviously there's velocities and certain sales numbers that brands need to hit to be able to, you know, to benchmark, okay, we can get all of these things included uh, in the price. But it was a theory that we had that really said, hey, if we combine these two services, we can bring value to our brands by combining the fees. Um, That was number one. I think that the second important factor in our brokerage uh, that we're really excited about is well, if you are in the field so often, the information that you can bring to headquarters is 10x mm-hmm. what other brokerage right. can bring, right? So we we see what's going on. We're t- interacting with customers. We're interacting with the store employees, and they have interesting information about how brands are performing, what's working, what's not working. We have information about the shelf, right, and are able to connect that to sales. So what happens if we put this off-shelf in place? Or if we run this type of promotional program, how does that affect sales? And so when we go into the buyer's office, we can connect field actions and data to what we're doing. And then we can pitch those ideas to the actual retailers at headquarter level, which unlocks a new ability to, you know, really amp up pitches, right? Hey, let's try this program. We know it, you know, drives this value at the store. So I think the enhanced value, uh, you know, the, the visibility to data from the field really drives our pitches and really enhances our ability to sell in the headquarter office. Yeah, you know, then, it's funny because, yeah, sorry, go on. Keep going. No, I was going to say that the third thing is, uh, it you know, when you go and you pitch a brand to a retailer, you know, retailers are really concerned about, they're taking a risk on brands, whether it's right. bringing in a new product right, or whether it's bringing in innovation. They, they have a limited amount of space on shelf and everything they put on shelf, they expect to sell through. That's why they're bringing these brands into the retailers, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a risk that, well, if this brand doesn't perform, then that there's an opportunity cost there, right? So what's yeah. interesting is if you go into those pitches and say, well, I have a field army that's going to be in store, you know, weekly making sure that, you know, this product's in stock, that it's flying off the shelves, that we're executing any promotion or any program we pitch you. 
it really reduces the risk for the retailers to make those decisions. So, you know, it's those are the three really exciting things that we've uncovered as we've thought about how would a field sales and merchandising and brokerage team work together and what sort of value or new value would that drive for brands? Yeah, I mean, just even going back to, you know, even pre-COVID, a big selling point for, you know, a new retailer partner is like, here are the ways that I'm going to support you. Like, you know, I, I think it, anyone who's pitching a retailer needs to have a slide that's like, here's what we do. Here's what we do digitally. Here's our social following. Here's our email. Here's how we're going to like put a flyer in any D2C package that also has like a coupon for you, retailer A, you know, and then here's what we're going to do at the shelf. You know, this is the in-store stuff. This is how we're going to support. And absolutely, you know, here's how many people we're going to have, like, you know, making sure that we look beautiful because we know that you don't have the labor to do it. And then it's like, here's how we'll participate in your, you know, whatever program you have, you know, the meal kit thing you do or the digital, you know, circular that you have or whatever it is. But that's just, you know, that needs to be in there. It needed to be in there in 2019. I think with labor being what it is in the grocery stores, you know, it needs to be there triple now. It just, I think from a brand perspective, it just feels like the squeeze, you know, we're supposed to be profitable. We're supposed to be growing. We're supposed to be, you know, high velocity and we're supposed to be supporting our retailers and we're supposed to be low cost so that the consumer doesn't freak out. And it's just, you know, it's a lot. <laughs> it's that is it's a, lot. a lot. Yeah. You know, and so, I mean, we need, we need all the help that we can get. Um, but going back to the brokerage thing, it's funny because I had Kari from Greenspoon on, a, you know, a, a bunch of episodes ago. And it's she started off very much like a demo person and then started sort of selling in and then stopped the, the demoing and the, and the real merchandising piece and leaned harder into the brokerage piece. I'm just kind of curious with you guys, like, is the idea really once a brand is in a retailer, you are you then sort of take over their brokerage in terms of secondaries or getting more SKUs or just making sure that promo plans are in place and really making sure the communication? Or are you planning on like building out, you know, okay, we're going to now build out a, a separate team for Kroger and a separate team for, you know, the natural channel and a separate team for conventional, or have you guys not decided yet? Yeah. So we're really focused today on the natural channel. I think that's right. been our, our bread and butter from day one. We've definitely experimented on the merchandising side in the conventional channel, and there is, there's room to grow there. Um, we'll definitely explore that in the future, but where we've focused both programs today, the brokerage and the merchandising channel, focus mm -hmm. has been in the natural space. So as we've built this brokerage, which is national at this point, the brokerage and the merchandising teams are both duly focused in the natural channel on those bigger right. national retailers, those regional retailers, and then the independents. Mm -hmm. our, our business model and how we expect to really introduce this to brands is really, this is a new way to build your sales organization. Right. It's yeah. it's not you're going to have a merchandiser or a sales team or a or a brokerage. It's going to be, hey, this is dirty hand sales. Right. And we mm -hmm. are going out there and we're going to attack not only the headquarters office by having a field sales team, but once you are on the shelf, we're going to get you through the register. So yeah. we want brands to look at us as a new way of building their brand. Um, you know, we we cap our portfolios. We represent only a few brands. Uh, that's core to our strategy. And then we want to have the highest quality services that allow you to go to one place to get everything. And that's going to be baked right. into how how you do business and how we do business, so that we make it as easy as possible for you to work with us. So you know, when we look at brands, that's that's the approach. It's it's just saying it's it's going to you know a, a bigger brand, a medium brand, a small brand out there, and saying. How do we look at your sales strategy and attack it from both a headquarter and field at the same time, right? How can we bake that into one strategy? Yeah, no. And it, I mean, it has to be, it's like this flywheel, right? And it's so bifurcated right now. It's, it's how I started off the questions. Like there's so many different 
pieces in it. You and, and as a brand, you know, especially if you don't have like a super sophisticated salesperson who you know is another you know big headcount, you don't know who's kind of responsible for what. I didn't know who how to even measure success of any of these programs for a while because I didn't know who was actually responsible for them. And they all kind of work together. It's like you can't paint the walls without tiling the floor, but the tile guys can't lay down the tile until the paint is, you know, the thing. And the, it's everything's so interconnected. So it makes total sense to just try to streamline it. And I think, you know, I like the way that you're framing it, making it, you know, the system isn't working particularly well. You know, it's just, it's, I think, um, you know, because everything is expensive and because the margins are so thin already, both for brands and the retailers, you know, everything has to, there can't be any sort of slack in the rope, you know? And so you guys taking on, it's, it, it makes total sense. You're in the field, you see the brands, you know what's going on. It's actually, you're supporting the brands. You're also very much supporting the retailers, which is, you know, clearly already a big part of what you do. So it, it makes a lot of sense. I, I, for one, like it a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I you know, I think what you said about, you know, how, how there's all of these different players in the chain and you don't know how to measure success. I mean, a, a lot of brands face that, you know, I, I think everybody, they know that they need these third parties in place, but mm -hmm. sometimes as you go a layer deeper, it is, it's very difficult to track who's doing what and then what actually is right. successful. And I, the way that I look at vendors personally within dirty hands is like a job description. Like what are the three mm -hmm. things that this vendor is supposed to be doing right here are the goals and then here are the metrics that measure success. Right. And I'm going to be hyper-focused at looking at each party to say, are we delivering on the things that they're signed up to do? I think it's easy when you have so many moving parts and so many vendors to just get lost in the sauce, right? To, yeah. to not know, am I, are these vendors performing and have I really set clear you know, intention around what they're being hired for. So, you know, it, it, it is easier and hence the the brokerage and trying to create a service that is just under one umbrella. It's easier to manage vendors when there's less of them, right? And yeah, and that's part of the focus around sure. doing the things we're doing. No, 100%. Okay, so we've talked about dirty hands. We've talked about the importance of merchandising. We've talked about, you know, kind of moving into the broker space and, you know, streamlining the, the sales ecosystem, which is really, you know, I, I think I've said this on a few of the podcasts, like it's the number one thing I get calls about. It's the number one thing that people DM me about that they are just like confused and, you know, everything just feels very overwhelming. And there's all this like language that, you know, people don't really understand. And, you know, I think one other piece of this is that, possibly because of direct to consumer and COVID and this whole sort of like retail is dead kind of slogan that kind of came about in 2018, 2019, that sort of seemed to be further accelerated during COVID and I think is proving to be not necessarily the case. Brands have been spending money on this awareness and you know, I, I, I do want to call out, like, I had, I guess, the founder of Daring, um, Ross, on a month or so ago. They're in, I think, 18,000 doors, big brand, all over the place, massive distribution. He did a campaign with, like, Kourtney Kardashian, and who her husband is, I'm not a good pop culture person. And basically his gist, like his net net of that was like, he wished that he had bigger distribution to be able to capitalize on the awareness. So I think that there's like a sea change going from let's invest all our money into like tons of, you know, influencers and content makers and, you know, get this out there back to like, where are people going to shop? When are they making the decisions whether or not to buy my product? Where should I be spending money? Is it in like the 
digital universe of like building awareness on TikTok where, but, it, but that leads to, okay, maybe people know my brand, but are they, is that driving a decision at the shelf? And I think what we're seeing, and I'm, I guess this is my question for you, are you, are you seeing more people kind of come back to you after the last couple of years and say, okay, wait, we kind of went out over in this area. We want to get back to brass tacks. Like, can you help us? Yeah, there's there's a refocus going on with most brands. You know, as we talked about earlier in the conversation, it, it's a it's difficult. It's more difficult to raise money right now, which means that brands really do need to focus because they don't know. You know, number one, can I raise another round in the near term, and if I can, how much am I going to be able to raise? So I think mm-hmm. you know, to your point, prior years there was a focus on how do we look at different channels and test different channels, but that did cost money. And now when there's been a shift in the marketplace and the ability to raise money, there's definitely been brands refocus. Uh, on how they're spending their money and where they're spending their money. In, in, in my experience, brands are looking to places that are less exploratory in the near term, uh, places mm-hmm. that you know are more tangible, to your point. Where do we know the shoppers are or the bulk of the shoppers are and how do we win in those? And places? where do we have product that they can buy it? And where do we have product? Exactly. So doubling, there's a doubling down on what is the 20% of things that I can focus on that drives the 80% of my, my value. And and I think the good news in all of this is it's all cyclical, right? The, the good news mm-hmm. with natural and organic food is we know this trend is going to win in the long run. Like the, right. all eyes are on our industry. Everyone, the awareness around health and wellness is only growing. That beat drum is getting louder. So this short-term blip in funding or investors is, is going to be short-term. Um, and so yeah. what good operators and good founders are doing are saying, where is my product? Where are my shoppers? And how do I just double down on those places until we get out of this short-term rut in the marketplace? Yep. Yeah. No, I literally had this conversation with someone today um, because, you know, it is, it, it, it is a, it's less sexy. It's less big number. You know, when you, when your goal is to increase, you know, chimichurri velocity by one unit per, you know, <laughs> skew per store per week over X amount of things in the top blah, blah, blah stores. That doesn't sound as great as like, you know, increase my sales by, you know, $400,000 a month or whatever it is. But when you look to your point about the quality of the revenue, and that's what I always go back to, you know, with my team, consistency of revenue you know, not just getting these big load in months that like make your top line shoot up, but then you have a hard time staying in those doors and then it looks not so great. Um, and you're worried somehow that you're going to get caught or something. You know, I think founders have this feeling. I was just talking to someone the other day about, you know, what keeps most of us up at night are, you know, I hope this thing comes through. I hope this buyer says yes. I hope we get the PO. You know, I hope this investor likes it. And we can take so much of that out of our lives if we just go back to what is working, which SKUs are working to your point, which channels are working, which marketing line items are working, and then reinvesting in the stuff that's working and like really fishing where the fish are. Um, Getting rid of anything that just doesn't, totally makes sense anymore. Or, you know, a lot of us have things in our GNA that we haven't even really entirely looked at in a little while. It sounds ridiculous, but it's so empowering, you know, making those tough decisions now puts us in a position where when the money does start coming back and retail is kind of back on its two feet, you know, innovation is back in fashion and all that um, will be like primed and ready to go. Which kind of brings me back to, you know, you are looking at things, you're seeing brands all the day long, you're seeing the ecosystem, you have this 30,000 foot view. I know you have, you know, long term, you're very, you know, optimistic about an industry, you know, natural food industry. But I'd love to know just some other big picture thoughts on, you know, what you want founders and operators to know 
from your perspective, um, it can be good news. It can be not so good news, but stuff that you, that you wish you could tell all of us all the time. Sure. Yeah. And I, I appreciate uh, being able to, to voice this because I, I have a, a, a couple of ideas that I think are really important right now. I, and they're good news, right? I think now is one of the best times that we've seen in the industry uh, over the past 10 years in terms of brands really having an opportunity to grow and accelerate. Um, you know, in the past five years when things were really good and everybody was getting money, there were so many brands yeah. that came into the market and it made it really competitive. There's a limited number of shelves, right? Like that, that, mm -hmm. that is not really getting bigger or at least as fast right. as the amount of brands that were coming to the market was. Mm -hmm. And so it was really hard for brands to shake up categories because everybody was moving up into the right. You know, I, I think we're in a period of time where it has gotten harder. Uh, there's less brands getting yep. funded. There's some brands that that might not make it, unfortunately. But if yep. you are a brand, uh, there's an opportunity for you to shift the ranks of your category right now. If you're smart, if you're strategic, if you look at where you're spending your money, where you're focused, and make some really good decisions and and, and sometimes critical decisions and maybe maybe difficult ones at that. But now is the time where you kind of look at the playing board, right? And you say, mm -hmm. are all of these things that I'm doing worthwhile? Are they core to my strategy? Am I winning in the places that I'm at? And if I'm not winning, why why am I there, right? And, and maybe yep. it does deserve a, a tough decision. But when things are, are tough in the marketplace, it provides a huge opportunity to actually jump up the ranks in your category. When brands mm -hmm. are making rash decisions and cutting spend irrationally, you can be rational and make some really strategic decisions to focus, and you can quickly find yourself jumping the ranks. So that that was much harder to do uh, in prior years when everything was good. Now there's an opportunity for brands to to really succeed by, you know, shifting their strategy, looking at their playing board, and making some some good decisions. So yep. that that's number one. I would also say, you know, and you you talked about this a little bit. What we're ultimately doing here as brands and, and pretty much any business, but specifically brands, is we're telling a story, right? We're, we're telling a story either to, you know, the buyers when we're going in and trying to pitch new retailers or to our, our investors. And I think right. now is a good time for brands to draw out their story, right? Like, wh what am I trying to do here and why am I telling this story this way? And what I mean by right. that is... Maybe a brand story does include all of these different channels. It includes natural, it includes conventional, it includes D2C, it includes, you know, all of these various different channels. And, you know, when you when you step back and you look at that story, you say, wait, wait a minute, with where we are today, this story doesn't make sense, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's time to change the story because ultimately, if I'm trying to you know, raise a really good round with an investor over the next year. That's my goal. That's my new strategy. Maybe my sh story should show me winning really strongly and profitably in this one channel. And if I have yeah. that be my new story, then I can reach this new goal. But out of my old story, I'm not going to be able to reach that goal because maybe investor thinks that I'm too scattered, right? Yeah. So I think now is the time where you, you open up your storybook, you look at what you're doing, and then you reinvent yourself. And, you know, it's it's tough to do because there's this emotional tie to the decisions we've made in the past, right? I busted, you know, I, I spent so much time working on this one retailer, this these couple of SKUs or this innovation, mm -hmm. and it's to market. And it's tough to say, you know what, now's the time to to maybe, you know, turn that thing away. Maybe it's time to refocus. Yeah. That's that's a hard emotional decision. But at this point in time, it's awesome. It's a great opportunity for brands to really take a look at their story and make some some decisions there. Yeah, and I think you know, I, I might have talked about this on. I, sometimes I don't know if I've talked about it publicly or privately. So I <laughs> just if I've said this before, everyone, sorry, but I think it's okay to have a channel that isn't necessarily gangbusters from a you know from a bottom line if it's also doing a good job as a marketing channel, right? There are right. some sales quote unquote channels that aren't necessarily like great velocity accounts, but you know, you get a brand block there and, and it does well for the brand. Um, sure. As long as you use, you know, in our case, we have one or two of those and 
They don't do particularly great velocity. They're an absolute drag from an operations perspective. Margin is pretty crappy. And at the end of the day, because we don't look fantastic on those shelves, because our set is a bit, you know, haggard, um, it's not a great marketing channel. It's only a good marketing channel if you look beautiful and it's in a beautiful set, right? It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't do much for the brand. And I would rather take that money. I got to figure out where that, where that, you know, revenue is coming from. But I'd rather get that revenue from a higher quality channel that I'm not just saying like, okay, now this is, it's just good for marketing to be in this retailer, you know, and those are really hard decisions. And, you know, they take time and you don't want to burn bridges and you don't want to look like you're moving backwards. But I do think that a lot of us are feeling less pressure maybe to spend $200,000 on slotting fees in an account that we know doesn't really work right now. Um, I mean, not that I've ever spent $200,000 on slotting fees, but (laughs) I have friends that, you know, these decisions are coming up or, you know, retailers want you to do a series of, you know, X, Y, Z, and you know that that's not going to really, you know, move the needle all that much. So is this an account that I'm okay letting go for now? Um, what's your take big picture? Because I know you said natural's going to win and, you know, everyone knows that this is where the consumer's moving. But, you know, in our case, for example, not only are they not growing, you know, shelf space, but they're really not growing refrigerated shelf space. So we're sort of in this like macro we believe in fresh and we know that consumers are hunting the perimeter of the store for better for you products. And, you know, most of the reasons why we might not make it into a new store is simply because they have four feet of, you know, a plant-based refrigerated set. They're not exactly sure where to put us and they don't have much room and they need to make sure that they have enough space for all the other refrigerated things. Like, are they, what what do you think is going to be happening there? How I mean, I guess what's your what's your big picture take? Yeah, I, I think there's a there's a couple of things there. Um, one you hit on, which is the the macro. I think retailers are are hyper focused on their bottom line right now. You know, with, mm-hmm. again with shifts and everything going on, um, retailers aren't as risk. They're not taking as many risks, right? They want to make sure the stuff that's on the shelf is making them money, right? You've seen a lot of shift towards um, private label, mm-hmm. right? The things that are going to drive dollars to their bottom line. Um, and so I would say that number one, that's cyclical. That'll change uh, as, yeah, as the thing, as the change in the marketplace. Um, when you talk about, you know, how do you how do you convince somebody to make a decision about a shelf? I think that's that's where you really need to develop a strategy with your vendors. Of, okay, maybe this story that we're telling isn't resonating, or this strategy mm-hmm. that we're pushing isn't resonating. Why? Why isn't it resonating? And what can we do to maybe convince the person on the other end to try this? Right? Are there any mm-hmm. new things that we can do? So I, I, I think it's a mix of those two things. Um, the, the first one being the, the risk taking with retailers and maybe not as many new things happening at store. That's just the environment we're in, but that's going to go away and it's already starting mm-hmm. to get a little bit better. Um, mm-hmm. And the second is just to your point, having the right vendors who, when something isn't working, that you can go and say, how do we change our strategy here? Or what are the things right. that we can try uh, that we could test out that may resonate in a different manner to those decision makers? Yeah. And it feels like, you know, I mean, at least for us, and I think it's because we now get data, you know, we didn't have spins until, you know, several months ago. So we didn't even, you know, we were more telling the story about the evolving home cook and, you know, our social stats and driving people to shelf. But now it's getting a little bit, as I think brands get older and a little bit more grown up, they start to say, okay, you have these four feet, here's what, you know, the set looks like, here's the data, this is where the growth is coming from, this is what we do compared to the people next to us or around us, this is how we're incremental. Like it gets a little bit more, less consumer story, to use your word, and probably more 
how are we helping you with your top priority, which is clearly bottom line. What works really well, Allie, and we we love this is create FOMO, right? Like mm-hmm. go to that re- if 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 you can do it at store level, show the show the buyer, the decision maker in store that you did it up the street in a different retailer and it boosted sales mm-hmm. by 100%, right? Create mm-hmm. FOMO with that that retailer. It's like a game. How do you create this, you know, fear of missing out with the retail yep. decision maker where you say this person up the street is beating you cuz they tried this new tactic? And you yep. can do the same thing in headquarters office if you say, hey, this retailer, look, they've got, you know, Ali's sauce in this four foot set <laughs> and it's its sales have boosted by 300%. Like we think yep. you should try this out. Here's why you're missing out. So I, I yep. think creating that sense of FOMO, tying it to data, to your point, and then giving the retailer a, here's why you can't turn this down uh, offer is, is what can get you through. Yep. No, amazing. Well, Dan, we covered a lot. Um, that was amazing. I think I heard a little lamb chop in the background, which made me very nostalgic for <laughs> for a minute there. But um, congrats on the family, um, and I can't thank you enough for you know being just a good good person in the industry, putting good stuff out there, and you know all of these things are businesses, but at the end of the day, like when you're helping brands get into people's lives and make their lives better, I think that that gives us all sort of this bigger mission, which is um, really nice that we're all in it together. So thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, thanks for doing the same and creating this community you have here. Awesome. And Liam, thank you as always for engineering. Couldn't do it without you. Um, everyone appreciate you and this is good stuff. We're, we're in a good spot. Tighten up your little ships and sail through the storm. And I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.